This is Around the Rim with LaChina Robinson. Hello, basketball fans, and welcome to a brand spanking new episode of your ESPNW Women's Basketball Podcast, Around the Rim. I am your host, LaChina Robinson, joined by my fantastic and fabulous producer, Tarika Boston Brasby. And the number one question on everyone's mind is how is Tarika doing? post-surgery she shared with us um, via Twitter that she was having back surgery to um, not only fix a condition but to relieve some pain that Tarika has been living in for a while so T we love you we've been praying for you what's the latest first and foremost thank all of you for your continued prayers and your encouraging words and your wonderful gifts I appreciate all of it. Um, it really made me feel really good and kept me in very high spirits throughout the entire process. Um, so that was very, very kind of you all. I appreciate that. But I'm doing good. I'm doing well. I'm doing better. Um, in the words of my doctor, it's an inside out healing process. So I just need to be patient, let the process work its course. Um, I'm going to be a Sixers fan right now and trust the process, but I'll be, I'll be good. I, I'm, I'm feeling well. Well, that is wonderful to hear. And um, we hope that the rest of the process goes great and that you were living pain-free one day very soon. But that back surgery did not keep you off Twitter. Um, tweeting about random WNBA happenings, of course, um, your Connecticut son were always top of mind. Uh, what a season for the WNBA. And first, not even thinking we were going to have a season, to the fantastic job by the league, the Players Association, every team, you know, every media outlet, ESPN, everyone that was involved in making the season success. Um, zero positive coronavirus tests uh, in the bubble in Bradenton. 68% increase in overall viewership for the WNBA this summer. I mean, the metrics for the league were, were great, and especially when we're living in a, in a COVID-19 time where most sports leagues saw decreases in their viewership, including the NBA, who put on a show this season. They were phenomenal. But, um, you know, people are deciding whether or not they want to tune into sports and how they're feeling about us playing basketball in a pandemic, maybe how they feel about the social justice platform that leagues are using. And despite all of that, the WNBA is thriving. And don't forget about the orange hoodie, which did make an appearance in today's show as well. So congratulations to everyone. And Tarika, just your thoughts on what overall, you know, Seattle Storm won the championship. Um, they swept the Las Vegas Aces. There were so many storylines throughout the season definitely the headline is the social justice push on behalf of the players but what stands out to you most about the season i think there are three things that i think instantly stand out to me and you kind of touched on two of them one of which is one there's this this notion that you know people won't watch the WNBA, that people aren't interested in this sport. Well, a 68% overall increase and a 34% increase in the finals alone, that lets us know that people will watch the sport. We just need to make sure that it's on in places that our audience are, like Twitter, CBS Sports, ESPN, ABC, having the games on all of those channels were amazing and it really helped to grow the audience this year. So that was one thing that stood out. Two, 
Um, also saying that people are not interested in social justice. Well, COVID-19 has actually forced us to be interested in social justice and it's forced us to come to a lot of realizations that maybe other people weren't willing to do that. And I think these women did a phenomenal job of ensuring that that message was never lost. Um, so that's definitely something that stood out. And then three, this idea that this season doesn't count or that there's an asterisk by the winner because it was played in a bubble, that's ridiculous. These women were basically self-secluded for three months, were not able to talk to their families. It was a neutral playing field. There was not a crowd that could help influence anything. There wasn't weren't no home court advantage on any side. I think this just pure bully basketball that we saw out of out of these players really makes this season probably one of the toughest seasons that we've ever seen in this league and it's 25 years. So all you people that are talking about is there an asterisk by this season, y'all are crazy. Seattle earned every bit of that championship and kudos to them. Here's what I'll say. I get both sides of it, right? I do understand what people are saying. It's like, oh, well, there was no Elena Deladon. There was no Liz Cambage. And we don't want to make it seem like we didn't miss those players. We missed them on the court. But what it took to mentally and physically push through this season, to your point, T, to even make it to the finish line, I don't know that there'll ever be a tougher season or a tougher championship to win, all things considered, and while they're trying to fight for social justice, and where they're trying to stay safe from the coronavirus and getting tested every day. I just, I'm in awe of what the players did, what the league did, and I'm sure the fans are proud. So shout out to everyone for contributing to the growth of the league on on the court, off the court, media, trainers, coaches, just a fantastic job across the board. Um, In today's show, we have uh, two guests with us. We are going to just recap some odds and ends of the 2020 WNBA season with our Hall of Famer and ESPN WNBA analyst, Rebecca Lobo. Uh, And we will also replay an interview that I did this week for the ESPNW Summit with Commissioner Kathy Engelberg that you will not want to miss if you did not see it live. Um, You know, I have heard Kathy speak a number of times since she is taking over Commissioner. And to me, this was um, probably one of the more transparent um, and and just impressive overall interviews, I thought, from her. Um, So we we will roll that for you in a little bit. And around the room, fans, uh, Tariq and I will soon be taking a break from women's basketball between WNBA season and college season. But while we're out, feed your football hunger with the Mina Kimes podcast featuring Lenny. This week, she sits down with pro football focuses Steve and Sam to talk about the top teams in the NFL and much more. You can find the show wherever you get your podcasts. And with that, we just want to thank everyone for joining us this WNBA season on Around the Rim. As always, you can reach me at LaChina Robinson on Twitter. Tarika is at SheKnowsSports underscore. Um, our handle on Twitter is at Around the Rim Pod. You can email us at Around the Rim Podcast at gmail.com. Um, so you've got our digits, you've got our whereabouts. Um, and we hope you enjoyed today's show. Continue to support women's basketball, rock your hoodie. Um, and get ready. Huh? You are not going to get out of this podcast without me wishing you a happy early birthday. Oh my gosh. I'm canceling my birthday for 2020. So (laughs) thank you, but no thank you. My birthday will be celebrated in 2021. If anyone's interested in that, this is officially not my year. Grateful to be alive. 
don't get me wrong, but the birthday will be postponed. Team hashtag Team Scorpio. And with that, Tarika trying to ruin my podcast day by bringing my birthday up. We are going to forge ahead to our interviews with Rebecca Lobo and Commissioner Kathy Engelberg. All right, WNBA fans. Well, um, I feel like we didn't really have a proper ending to the season here on the Around the Rim podcast. And again, I want to thank everyone that was a guest host and came through and held it down uh, while I was in Connecticut calling in for the season. We enjoyed hearing from all the different voices, but to joining me right now to basically close out uh, WNBA and look ahead just a little bit to college basketball season. Join me in welcoming my hoop streams partner, Rebecca Lobo, the Hall of Famer. What's up, Rebecca? How are you? It feels like it's been so long since we called a WNBA game or did something together. <laughs> I know. I mean, what's crazy is we were so inundated with it for this time and it maybe has been two weeks and it feels like forever ago. You're absolutely right. Like we never called this many games in the regular season in such a short period of time as we did this past W season. And, uh, and yeah, now it's like, wait, what happened? (laughs) It hasn't been that long, but it was just so fast and furious for a while. And then we've had these calm waters. We don't know what to do. It was. So please, everyone, as you're listening to this podcast, know that we are a little bit removed from WNBA season, more so than the calendar may say, but we are definitely going to talk about some of the highlights and things that come to mind. And speaking of just how many games we had this season and the different environment, doing games from studio, I always say that the best thing about us working from studio was, honestly, for me, I got to learn from you. Like, I got to sit across the room from you as someone that I hope to analyze the game like one day and listen to how you communicate with Ryan, listen to what you're saying to producers. Um, You know, just, it was just, I I learned so much from you. What would you say um, your best professional takeaway was from this different COVID-19 broadcast season? I think in terms of the broadcast side, just how fortunate I am to work with the people that I work with, Uh, whether it's Ryan and Holly, having you in the studio with us uh, in your new expanded role as a studio host, some of the producers and directors that we worked with, um, because it certainly was a challenge to not be on site, to be calling these games in, in a universe that had changed so much from the last time we called a WNBA game from a political and social climate that had changed so much from the last time we had called a WNBA game. But I had our close-knit family. And so that helped, I think, make everything feel a little bit normal, more normal for us as we try to do the the players justice by calling their games. Yeah. And, you know, it's a, it's a great thing that we sounded like we were actually at the game. You know, you get that feedback a lot, but also it's, um, you know, it, it made it hard for people to understand that we don't have as much of a pulse on things as we normally would. Like, thank God that Holly was there and the coaches were so accessible and, you know, our production crew and everyone did a, a great job of making sure we were fielding information and, you know, camera guys and all that. But people often forgot we weren't there. So it was, a, it was a different level, a different type of work, just in making sure you were prepared and felt like, um, you know, we were up on things that were happening in Bradenton because they were shifting every day from what was happening on the court to the coronavirus to, uh, you know, the racial injustice, the fight for social justice by the WBA. So just a lot of moving pieces. Um, but one thing I, I do want to just touch on quickly because it was kind of ongoing 
you know, all the things that are happening in our country right now. Um, during our time in, in Connecticut, you actually wore a, a voting necklace on air, said vote. It was so cute. Everyone thought it was the same one that Michelle Obama had. had I'm worn. sure it was. I'm sure it was. It's clear that you got it from Claire's. Um, but Not Claire's. I got it from somewhere on Amazon. I just don't know okay. where. Okay. Well, then that makes it sound much better than Claire's. <laughs> I still buy jewelry from Claire's, by the way. Um, but my kids, come on. <laughs> <laughs> so, but you are doing something really interesting during the voting season. Tell us about it. Uh, well, first, one of the reasons I wore that necklace and, and when we were doing our hoop, hoop stream shows, wore vote shirts a lot was because that was the players platform, too. And it's so important for us to all be engaged right now um, with, you know, one of the most important elections we'll ever be a part of on the horizon. And um, my oldest daughter is a junior in high school. And she came to me, I think it was after Michelle Obama posted on Instagram saying um, that towns need more people to be involved on Election Day because the typical um, the, the pick typical volunteer is a senior citizen who is uh, more vulnerable to the coronavirus. So my daughter said to me, she's like, how can I be involved? And I said, let me find out. And, uh, and so uh, we have already gone to our training class. And one of the things we're doing in our small town, because uh, around the country, as we've already seen and expect to see more of most people voting earlier, absentee ballot or mail-in ballot, they need people volunteering to help um, count those ballots. So um, my daughter and I have been to a class that teaches us all about the process in our town, what we have to do. My daughter, because she's not yet um, 16, can't actually, or maybe it's because she's not 18, she can't physically touch a ballot, but there are a lot of things that she can do along the process, whether it's opening envelopes or once ballots have been removed from their envelope, uh, bringing those to a, a different part of, um, of the room where we're going to be. But that's what we're going to be doing uh, for most of election day is uh, after I vote is the two of us will be at our town hall helping with the process. And, and I'm thrilled that she was eager to be involved. And uh, I'm excited too to learn about the process and uh, to see it from another side and um, to be involved in this election that so many of us are so passionate about. And uh, it's going to be hard just sitting back waiting for the results of it. But this will be a way where we can feel uh, like we're doing something on election day. Yeah, it is going to be hard to sit back and wait because there's already like a ridiculous amount of votes. I might be making this number up, but I heard maybe this morning 40 million votes have already been casted, which is just, I, I, I don't know, maybe some kind of record for early voting. Um, but shout out to you and Steve and obviously the way you raise your children that your daughter comes to you about, you know, her, her social responsibility or what she feels like is her responsibility um, in participating in the voting process, even before she is yet of age and able to do so. Uh, but it, it is going to to be um, a, a game-changing moment. And to that point, I was just curious from you, have you, do you remember any moments during your playing days that the WNBA was at all, I know not to this degree, but involved with a strong voice around what's happening um, in, in social justice or social injustice? Not to this degree, for certain, um, because it was a different climate in those days. Um, it's interesting for me to even look back on that time, because I believe Sue Wicks, maybe in 1999, was the first professional athlete to come out um, as being gay. At one, one person, she was the first to ever do it. And this was the third year of the WNBA. You know, as players, we all understood our fan base and what a large segment of our fan base uh, were gay and lesbian uh, people. And, but it was kind of something you didn't talk about. No one ever told us not to, but you just 
our society wasn't in a place yet really where um, where a league was willing to have a gay pride night yet. Um, so I do remember when Sue came out, what a big deal that was. Um, and now thinking back, like, really, that was a big deal. But also understanding that that maybe was one of the first steps to go from where uh, the league was then to where the league is now, where you have so many women who are completely comfortable with who they are, that they then feel like they need to have a voice for other people. And so I think that was part of the building blocks and the process, but certainly there wasn't the same kind of engagement that we see the players have now. But it was those it was those baby steps though, right? It was what Sue did. It was, you know, the, the young girls that were even watching that and saying, you know, this is a place or a space in the WNBA where I can be myself, where I may see myself, that then, you know, brings a level of acceptance and helps you in finding your voice and finding what you ultimately are passionate about. And and I thought, you know, I know we've said this a number of times, I'm not gonna hark on it, but I just thought what the WNBA players this did this summer in terms of how they were able to get, you know, 144 players. Cause I count the women that were not in the bubble as well, cause they were out there doing their thing too, but to get them all organized on the same page about what was important to them and for them to use their collective voices for good. So shout out to the WNBA. Thank you for um, answering a couple questions on that, Rebecca. So let's jump to jump into some random things for this WNBA summer because it was just so crazy. So many, we didn't even really, there were so many games happening and so much, so much that I don't even think we really got to take in all that was happening. And my first thing, I wore my WNBA hoodie today because I was kind of sad thinking, is this going to be the last piece of WNBA apparel that goes viral? Now, the hoodie was worn courtside by Kobe Bryant, right? So that is something special that can, can never be touched. But it, it also just started to, to serve as this symbol of um, WNBA pride by NBA players, by celebrities. I mean, it's the way this hoodie has traveled has been, I mean, Naomi Osaka wore it. It's been fantastic. What's the next piece or do we just recycle this hoodie every summer? Uh, I don't know. I guess we'll have to wait and see, right? This was kind of the first brilliant marketing move by the WNBA because I can't think of another item of clothing other than maybe maybe a Jackie Robinson jersey that when you wear it, it stands for something more than just a team or a league. Like if you're wearing an NBA sweatshirt, okay, they like the NBA. If you're wearing an NFL, Colin Kaepernick would be another one. Um, If you're wearing an NFL, okay, what does that mean? Well, if if you're wearing the WNBA orange hoodie, it shows that you stand for equality, that you stand for social justice, that you stand for equality for women, that you stand for all of the things that the WNBA has come to represent. So I, you know, I would think it kind of has a... um, speaks in a similar way or or as loudly as if you see someone wearing a Colin Kaepernick jersey, you know they're not just wearing it because they're a Colin Kaepernick football player fan. They're wearing it for a bigger reason. Or if they're wearing a Jackie Robinson jersey, it means something more than just they liked him as a player. So I think it's kind of elevated itself um, into the territory of really standing, this item of clothing really standing for something. Yeah, that's a good point. I, I don't even think I've thought, I had thought about it in, in that level of depth. Like, to me, it was like, yes, you support the WNBA. But after what they did this summer, if you support the WNBA, you support a lot of other things, which is actually a, a really good point and really need to think about. I had to start with that because I was just like, well, what's going to happen with our hoodie? And it is hot this summer. So, I mean, everyone was willing to do it this year, but we don't know about next summer if everyone will be all excited about wearing their orange hoodie. Um, so, when we start to look at the season, and there's a, there's a lot of layers to this, I, I guess let's 
let's just start with giving Seattle their congratulations. If you're just coming out from under a rock, which could be a possibility during quarantine times, um, the Seattle Storm did win the WNBA championship in a sweep over the Las Vegas Aces. Um, Sue Bird, we have celebrated her. She just turned 40, 17 years in the league. Um, what she's done. Uh, is there one word that you think maybe could give people an idea of why Sue is, is so good at what she does um, on the court and why she's been so great? Because I know you have a personal relationship with her. You've both gone to UConn. So is there one word that really encompasses it all for you? Gosh, it'd be tough in one word, but I think if you boiled it down to one, it would just be, it would be two, it'd be competitive fire. You know, the reason she is so great is because she always wants to win. The reason she's able to play at this level when she was just about to turn 40 is because uh, she wanted to compete and to win and so did all the things necessary to get there. Um, you know, changed her diet, uh, changed the way she trained, um, all of that. So I think she just has a, like that elite different level of competitiveness that drives everything else that goes into her being as good as she is. You coming back to play in the WNBA next year? <laughs> is she? Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I think if she's healthy, she will. Yeah, I, I mean, it seems to me that she still loves the game um, at the same level she always has. It's got to be hard for her, right, to get her body every year to a place where, um, where she can perform at that level because I don't think she's the type of player that – is willing to accept less just to be on the court. I think she has to be performing at a, at a certain really high level for her to be willing to go out there. Yeah, I'm sure it was tough for her to come in and out, miss games, be in games, you know, just the, the whole rotation of it all, I'm sure it was difficult for her. But we hope she does return. At least I do. Uh, Stewie was fantastic. Uh, you know, shout out to Jewel Lloyd, who had a great finals. And also congratulations to the Las Vegas Aces, who put themselves on the map, only get stronger next year with more pieces. And I just thought did a phenomenal job. Um, moving on to maybe a moment from the bubble that makes you smile when you think about it. Some candidates, Bill Lambeer's hair in his, in his headband, um, all the babies that were in the bubble, all the kids, the, you know, the moms, um, the lunch line conversation about some of the eye contact that was happening between teams, uh, you know, the, the Diane Tarazi meet you officials in the lobby. I mean, there were a lot of just fun moments, but is there one that when you think back on it just brings a smile to your face from this year? Um, the group of children that were there, um, I think in one brought a smile to my face, you know, to see these kids at practices and some of the footage that was posted on social media or to hear um, some of the players talk about, you know, I think Sue, when she was on with us on hoop streams, talked about how some, sometimes they'd get up early in the morning and all the kids would be at the pool swimming around. Uh, but I think the most the one that hit home more than any other was when Tiana Hawkins had her son with her um, on the day that the players decided um, not to play. And as the women were speaking and as Ariel Atkins was speaking about why they weren't going to play and about um, young black men and young black boys to have Tiana Hawkins son right there um, is just something that uh, I think struck all of us as we were watching it. Yeah, really impactful. Uh, little Emmanuel, who, you know, it, as you looked at those t-shirts with the bullets on the back, you know, they wore the bullets symbolizing the shots um, that were fired into Jacob Blake by police. Y you only wonder what was he thinking? 
about that scene? You know, what was he thinking about this shirt, about going back and forth to the locker room with his mom as discussions were being had? And we, we touched upon this in our, in our interview with Kathy Engelbert, which we will hear later on, but she just, you know, she said the moment was so intense and we were watching it kind of from the outside looking in. I was supposed to broadcast that night. I'm sitting next to Pam Ward and all we see is the players on the court. And what ended up being a very historical and, and monumental night for professional sports across the board, but definitely in watching how those conversations were being had while having children there was, was something that we'll reflect back on. And, and Billy China, not only like what was he thinking, but what was his mom thinking? Like anyone who's a mom, like your responsibility is just to protect those little people that belong to you, right? So just what was she thinking and all of her teammates too, as they're looking at this little boy thinking he could be mine, it was just, it was just so unbelievably moving. It really was. Okay, team that you are most looking forward to watching this next season based on how they played this year, and then maybe a team you're a little concerned about um, as we head and start looking into the 2021 season. You know, I, I can answer this question a lot better probably. When's free agency start? I know. that's, that's <laughs> There's so much that, that we don't know because of free agency. Like I could say, I can't wait to see if Seattle can repeat. Well, what's Seattle going to look like? Or Vegas, what exactly is going to happen with them? Um, I think one of the teams that I was really excited and eager to see this year um, was New York because of Sabrina and and what were those pieces going to look like well of course when she got hurt um that changed things a little bit so I am interested to see uh, you know as New York gets some of their pieces back and Walt Hopkins you know gets his system in place and Sabrina um returns what that can look like but really for the others like this is a question we can't really answer until we see how free agency all plays out yeah, and you know, Rebecca, the thing that I know we're all like <laughs> trying to push into the back of our minds a little bit is like, what if there's another bubble season, right? <laughs> like, what if? I know, we hope that there's not. But then what do opt-outs look like? Or what players will then be available? I mean, that's a real conversation being that we're turning around a season in, in you know, the next, what, eight months? And we don't have a vaccine yet. And so that could also impact what happens with rosters. But uh, one team, when you mentioned free agency, that comes to mind for me is L.A. I mean, their entire team is basically on the free agent list. At some level, right? Yeah. <laughs> and so they could either, you know, either it's going to be watching how the money is divided amongst that team and how things happen in that space, or will one of their pieces move and go somewhere else? And obviously with Candace Parker and Neko Gumake, um, Chelsea Gray, they got some pieces where they move and it's not just um, some water splashes up, but it's a big splash, right? <laughs> and so, um, and we've seen that happen in free agency, especially in this last year with how players were moving and shaking. But I do agree with you. It's hard to say. For me, I, I like New York, you know, looking forward to what they will do. They have such an interesting playing style with shooting the threes and going under all screens, kind of how Walt Hopkins is doing things. So looking forward to how they develop Definitely, and we'll get into this in a moment, Dallas and, and what happens with that team from a coaching standpoint, but also they were this close to making the WNBA playoff. Connecticut gets John Quill Jones back. Vegas gets Plum and, you know, hopefully Liz Cambage back. I mean, there's just, yeah, there's a lot going on. Tiffany Hayes and Renee Montgomery will be back in Atlanta. And, um, you know, all those teams seem to only get stronger with whatever pieces they may be missing. And we can't forget about the Washington Mystics who will get the MVP back and Tina Charles. Right, yeah. I'm excited to see what that's going to look like. Yeah. <laughs> they 
That is going to be a very interesting one, especially when now you have to figure out where Maisha Hines' Allen fits on that. That's the whole free agency thing with Washington that could, you know, that's, that's, that's going to be a fun one to watch. Okay, so the, uh, the WNBA got great exposure this year, 68% increase in viewership. Um, you know, the social conversation was greater than we've ever seen it in terms of fans on Twitter, different participation, and, you know, just all of that. Um, what, how do we carry this into next season? What are the things that have to happen? Like, you know, do we have to have 40 games again on television, on ESPN? Um, do you think we're just, we could just feed off of the momentum of people being more in tune with what's happening? Was there something marketing wise that you thought was very effective? Um, where can we go with exposure next year? We need more games on TV. Uh, I mean, one of the reasons that um, viewership was up so much is it was easy to watch games because they were all on TV. We at ESPN did more than we ever had, way more than we ever had um, in the regular season. CBS Sports did a huge number of games. We need to continue that. I don't know if it could be quite at that level, um, but we need to continue to have games on TV. This past offseason, WNBA free agency, there was a lot of big stories, a lot of big players moving teams. People, weren't, people were talking about it. We at ESPN didn't really have a platform to talk about it. I would like to see us at ESPN have more of an opportunity to really talk about these things. There was a lot to say. You and I were talking about it when it was just the two of us, but you know, there, there wasn't really a platform. Hopefully, uh, we'll be able to have that to continue uh, to talk because people do care. And when, when they have a chance to watch, when they have a chance to listen, when they have a chance to absorb themselves in the league, um, they enjoy it. And the numbers prove that out. So hopefully we have that. We're going to have another great free, period of free agency like we did a year ago. Hopefully there will be a platform to people for people to really um, engage in uh, talking about all of that. Totally agree with you. And if people weren't paying attention, we did try to generate some of that conversation with our WNBA hoop streams online. And the good thing is we can always jump on Zoom and tape our own WNBA hoop streams if we need to. But that coverage is very important. And just shout out to everyone who tuned in to watch, was on League Pass, all the broadcasters, obviously the media that covered. It, it, takes, it takes all of us to, to pull this off and make it happen. And shout out to everyone in the SPN because it was a load um, in, in doing all the game from a production standpoint. Um, Sarah Gallero, who's our uh, coordinating producer, you know, just all the moving pieces, all the decisions that had to be made. So shout out to everyone on that. All right. So Rebecca, the Dallas Wings have a job opening. Who should be considered for that position? I don't know. I don't know. Um, you know, you would say, all right, uh, Show Reeve has two qualified female assistants on her bench. Um, well, three. You know, Planet Pearson, uh, Rebecca Brunson, Katie Smith, who's already had a chance um, a couple years ago coaching with the New York Liberty. Will they get a chance? Um, will Eric Tebow, uh, who has been learning under his dad uh, for the last bunch of years in Washington, have an opportunity? I don't know. You know, will they will they look inside the WNBA? Will they look outside the WNBA? Um, how important is it to Dallas for their head coach to be an African-American woman? Um, and, you know, then who are the candidates that fit that criteria? So I'm interested to see um, who it'll be. And I'm just as interested to see, you know, kind of their time frame. How, how long are they going to wait before they, they make that hire? Um, but yeah, I, I did certainly did not see that um, parting of ways coming. Yeah, mutual parting of ways, if you haven't heard. Um, Brian Adler is no longer in Dallas and a great job. I mean, 
in terms of the product that they have, the leading scorer in the league and Arike Gumbawale. Um, it seems like they're starting to come together as a team and kind of understand things as a young squad in the, in the, in the WNBA with some experience under their belt um, this year. So uh, it will definitely be interesting to see what Of course, the WNBA Association tweeted out as soon as, you know, almost as soon as the job became open, um, a, a sort of a plea to, to the WNBA, like, look, we have no black women as head coaches in this league of 80% black women. Uh, that's embarrassing. And, you know, I know in other sports league, they talk about Rooney rules and, you know, what can you do to make sure that people are in the pipeline? But to me, when you have a league that's produced so many coaches at various levels who are women of color, there's a pool there. And, um, you know, it, 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 it's really mind boggling that the, the numbers are where they are because the women of the WNBA know this league better than anyone. And so why wouldn't alums be getting more opportunities? And I'm not at all saying that people should get chances if they're not qualified, but there are WNBA alums that are women of color that are, are qualified. So that's at the top of my list in, in terms of candidates is making sure that that pool is diverse. Agree. And, 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 and maybe get enough resources to make it worthwhile for some of those women who may be on the NBA side right now as assistants or, or player development or whatever, um, make it worthwhile for them to jump from the NBA to the WNBA as well. Because Becky Hammond didn't say necessarily that she wanted to coach the NBA, the WNBA, but she did tell us that she hopes that an opportunity in the women's game does circle back around for her at some point. So with that being said, we'll see what happens. All right, just two more questions for you, Rebecca. Um, I guess what is just your, the most memorable thing about this season for you? And it could be, or you know what? How about the most memorable performance? And it can be anyone. It could be um, a cameraman. It could be a player. It could be the front office staff. Most memorable performance for you this summer. I'm going to go, I'm going to keep it in the family and say um, Holly Rowe, because Holly Rowe, I think, worked more than anybody, almost. Maybe the trainers, the trainers worked more than Holly, but she moved and lived in Florida the entire time, um, lived at IMG, uh, quarantined, um, went to cover all of the games. You know, you and I, LaChina, split um, the games in terms of calling them. Well, Holly did every single one. She took herself out of her life and plopped herself at IMG for two and a half, three months, covered, covered the league in a way that I don't think anybody else could, made sure the stories got told uh, the way they needed to be told, especially when the players had their day of reflection. And it was really important that, that their message was conveyed the right way. Holly made sure that happened. Um, she was a rock star. And, uh, and it impacted you and me in, in, in such big ways when we were covering games and then when we were watching games, uh, she was phenomenal this year. Yeah, I'm gonna co-sign on that. I mean, I still can't believe the amount of work she was doing, the way she did the job. Um, you know, I just think about how much we would not have known if, if it wasn't for Holly. And from helping to organize the candlelight vigil to helping to get that picture of the players all locking arms that will go down in history, um, the round table, all of the things that were happening and pieces that were moving and keeping an eye with Commissioner Kathy Engelberg, but also with the Players Association. With, you know, it's just, I'm with you. I mean, it definitely goes to Holly. But shout out to everyone who, uh, you know, worked this season, trainers, everyone. It was, it was incredible players. 
all the sacrifices that everyone made. All right, so uh, before I let you go, we do have to talk just a little bit about college basketball because that's your next season, and I'm sure you're excited about it. We don't know how it's going to happen. We did, however, get a little bit of a taste with the announcement that UConn would be playing Louisville December 4th at the Mohegan Sun. We know that Jeff Walls gets ACC Player of the Year, Dana Evans, back. Um, the UConn Huskies have a young woman that I'd love to get your thoughts on, Paige Beckers. If she's anything like these highlights I'm seeing on WSLAM, Woo! I'm afraid for the rest of the country for the next four years. I mean, how good can she be? Are we talking about Brian Stewart good? I think she's different from Stewie. Um, what's Because I haven't seen her play in person. Like you, I've just watched a bunch of highlights. Um, I can say this, that when she was a freshman or a sophomore, um, Coach Oriyama was already talking about her in, you know, in conversation with me. Um, in glowing, glowing ways. Like this, he, he, he could not wait for the potential opportunity to coach this young woman, you know, and he's not somebody who throws comparisons around a lot to his former players, but he'd be like, you know, the competitive fire she has like Diana Taurasi. Like he doesn't compare a lot of people, especially when they're freshmen or sophomores in high school to the, to Diana Taurasi. So I think, I think, you know, Stewie might not be the right comparison. Maybe it's, maybe Diana's the right comparison because they're similar size. Um, their vision, I think is similar, their ability to score. Uh, but I am, I am really excited to, uh, to see what she can do, you know, at the college level. And especially, you know, UConn does have some good early season games. You mentioned Louisville um, in a tournament. They will most likely end up playing Mississippi state. They're going to have some good games. Um, so yeah, I, I'm, I'm eager to see her. Well, if she's a choice between Brianna Stewart and Diana Taurasi, the choice is up to us because it's like four national championships, which I'm sure UConn Husky fans will take, or the entertainment factor and just the goatness that goes along with Diana Taurasi. Like, then we are the ones that have to make decisions. But either way, wow, tough, tough Connecticut team. Um, Olivia Nelson Odota, Kristen Williams. Avina Westbrook will be playing um, this season, so definitely will be a fun team to watch. Uh, Rebecca, we appreciate your time. You, I, I know you got a lot going on. You got kids. You got parent-teacher conference. You know, you're, you're moving and shaking. But thank you for everything you did this season for the league and all of your time. And um, we're going to have you back for college basketball if you're not too busy. Yeah, awesome. Keep keep doing your thing on uh, on this podcast, LaChina, because it's being mentioned more and more how it's the only ESPN podcast devoted to women's basketball, and uh, you're holding it down for, for the whole game. So thank you for that. Well, thank you. We'll come back whenever you want. And if you want to sit in the host seat, feel free. You can take that over, too. All you. <laughs> this is not my podcast. This is our podcast. <laughs> okay, so. All you. <laughs> Thanks, B. Appreciate your time, man. I just want to welcome in WNBA Commissioner Kathy Engelbert right now. And Kathy, in hearing everything that Carol just ran down and what not only you've accomplished so far as commissioner of this league, but um, just the job that you did this summer in a time of great uncertainty, what stands out to you most? Hi, LaChina. Thanks so much. And Carol, thank you. Now I need to give royalties to Carol for the book, <laughs> for sure. Um, so <laughs> what stood out? Um, you know, what stood out? Um, you know, flipping the business model on a dime in the middle of a global pandemic and, you know, a, a racial crisis in this country that continues. 
Uh, and, you know, it was really important to the players, I think, and I give them a lot of credit because going somewhere for 92 days in a bubble is not easy, away from family. Some got to bring their families. Obviously, we're a mom and woman-driven league, working women, so we did allow some guests and um, certainly moms to bring their kids. But, you know, what stood out was having an entire league in one place at the same time during, again, very challenging times and listening to the prior panel on the mental strain and anguish uh, that athletes can go through and how important it was for our players to believe that we, one, could make sure we have a very health and safe environment for them. That was priority number one, but also that we could put on a highly competitive season while it being bigger than basketball with their social justice platform. So, you know, just turning the whole business model on its head. We had 1.3 million fans sit in our seats last year that we didn't have, we had zero this year. Uh, and so just think about that and let that set in as to what that could do for a league of the size and scale of ours. And I'm so proud of uh, our team here at the league uh, and I'm so proud of the players and, and our whole ecosystem for the support that we got. Yeah, just a, an incredible job by you and everyone involved. And you had a lot of stakeholders that you had to convince. You mentioned the players. Um, you've obviously got, obviously you have teams and um, just a lot of moving pieces that you had to get on the same page about even having uh, a season this year. So what did you learn in that process about your job as a leader and how to get that buy-in? Yeah, it's a great question about stakeholders that everybody on this um, in this conference can learn about how important it is to socialize and communicate and over-communicate in the middle of a crisis because a crisis tends to amplify your weaknesses, but it's also an opportunity to fix that and to build stronger relationships with your stakeholder group. Uh, so for us, again, coming off the first virtual draft that Carol referred to in a successful draft, you know, think about it. Back in April, we didn't know a lot about the virus. And so there was a lot of uncertainty. In New York, where I am today, it was spiking, but it wasn't even in Florida and it wasn't in Vegas and other places that we were looking at having a potential season. So, um, so if you think about the stakeholders you had to bring along at how we can put on uh, health and safety. And, you know, I didn't know things like, you know, cycle threshold values and sufficient viral load and everything I learned about this virus you know, by consulting with specialists. So even the stakeholders, the medical community, including our head athletic trainers, our team physicians, we had to make sure, because at first we weren't really communicating with them and we realized, but that's who the players are going to for advice. So we need to bring everybody into the conversation, communicate very clearly about why we thought we could pull this off uh, with health and safety as the number one priority. Yeah, every time I would hear you say that you were having conversations with health officials, I'm just wondering how, how wide your medical terminology is now based on where it was when you started this season and started all of these discussions. But I do want to take you back a little bit because you hit the ground running as commissioner of the WNBA. And um, one of the first major things that you did was to negotiate a landmark, landmark CBA, which included um, maternity leave, increase in, in pay, um, what we would call a holistic CBA. Um, tell me what you learned in the process of those negotiations as you look to balance the business of the WNBA with um, what we know often happens to women in negotiations that they get the short end of the stick. 
Yeah, it's really interesting. Think about it. At last year's ESPNW Summit, we were just in the throes of coming off the WNBA season and entering into the core part of those negotiations. And uh, again, you know, the legal team and, and the team before I even got here did a great job of setting up what all the issues were. I just came in and realized pretty quickly all the things the players wanted were the things I would want if I was a player. And having been a player, not at the professional level, all of these things made sense to me. So it was one of the few times in my career in a negotiation, I said, you know, usually you have the opposite goal of the other side and you're trying to negotiate hard against it. Here, you know, very proud of the players. It ended up being a very, very tough negotiation, but proud of them for standing up on what they wanted and what they believe and proud of the league and the owners. I mean, the owners deserve a significant amount of uh, credit and support because ultimately as the owners who have stepped up, you know, financially uh, with, um, you know, supporting some of the commitments made uh, under the collective bargaining agreement. But, you know, it doesn't seem possible to China. That was just January. What a year. Um, and it seems like it was five years ago now, but uh, really proud of, as you said, you know, again, this is a league of working women. And, you know, coming from Deloitte, where we had 100,000 people, you know, 50 percent women, you know, we did things for all of our people, but certainly with a focus on women and developing women. So why would we do anything different here? Because sports is big business, just like, and business is all about relationships. So to me, it, it wasn't as um, different as what I had dealt with before. The only thing that was different was, yeah, I, I think these things were important too. And, and we had to fight along with the players, but we had to find the right economic model to fund them as well. And can't say enough about how important it is for you as a former athlete, as a mom, as a working woman to have all of that also in your background as you're negotiating with women who mirror exactly who you are and some of the needs that you've had over the course of your career. Sticking with the economics, I know that you once, once mentioned that you were brought in to this position to transform the economics of the WNBA. What have you learned about this league from that viewpoint and also just the overall valuation of women's sports? That's probably been my biggest surprise is coming in because I didn't know a lot about how women's sports were valued, how a placement on a uniform, a patch, a placement on a court, um, what the metrics were that were used to measure it, and obviously viewership and ratings and all the traditional impressions, media impressions that are used. And, and you know, this is still a transformation, a work in progress, because when I came in, when I learned that less than 1% of all you know, sports sponsorship, sports money, money coming from corporations into sports went to women's sports. You know, that's a pretty tall task to try to move that when the denominator is enormous, enormous because of the size and scale of men's sports. So um, the economics are not easy to drive. I think we made great strides this year with the help of ESPN. I mean, a 68% increase in viewership, and that's a lot in part of what Carol described uh, around an increase in games. And people say, well, you have more viewership because you have more games. But that's the point. The more viewership you have, you know, I think Kate Johnson on, from Google on a prior panel said, if you build it, they will come. Um, we also had 17.2 uh, million unique female visitors this year, and that was up, uh, uh, viewers, I'm sorry, that was up 28%. Um, our game three was up 34% in in the rating, um, and overall the finals were up 15% when one of those three games competed with the NFL. Um, and so it's a very crowded sports and political arena this year, and I think the WNBA really came out well. But back to the economics, if, 
these two facts are right, LaChina. 84% of sports fans are interested in women's sports, and women control 85% of U.S. spending power. We should be able to um, really transform the way women's sports are valued. A lot, some of it's in the algorithm of the way it gets valued, because I believe it's off a men's model, heavily discounted, but some of it's in the exposure. And that was one of our goals this summer, was to use the crisis to, to draw more exposure into, use two crises, actually, to draw exposure into uh, women's sports. And I think that we were hugely successful in doing that, and now we can use that momentum to go into our 25th season, the only women's professional league in America, to reach its 25th season, and we're fortunate to have the NBA as a huge supporter, NBA players, but also if you look at the demographics of our fan, that's also an opportunity for us to drive a broader fan base and broader viewership. If you build it, they will come. We will continue to say that because I want to go back to that number, that miserable number around sponsorship for women's sports. And when you look at the WNBA in particular, it's arguably the most marginalized league in professional sports where you have 144 women, 80% um, plus black league. Um, you have many players that identify with the LGBTQ2TIAQ plus, I hope I got all those letters in, um, community. Uh, when you're going to sponsors and you're looking at the demographic of your league in particular, um, what are some of the unique challenges you face in getting them to invest in the league that it comprises of women that are often forgotten and left out. Well, and I think um, as, as I came into the league, that's exactly what I saw as opportunity in the narrative and getting that narrative correct about women, you know, women, women of color, LGBTQ plus, women who really have been marginalized and haven't gotten the support and, um, and, and guidance and development and opportunities um, and so one of the reasons I took the job was exactly that, LaChina, was to come in and build a narrative and go to corporations and say, their values match yours, you should support them. And so we did launch, coming out of the collective bargaining agreement, the WNBA Changemaker Program and signed up three inaugural changemakers, AT&T, Deloitte, and Nike. And if you think about their values and how they match, and I know Shiz Suzuki was on earlier from AT&T, and talked about how they have really doubled down on their commitment to women. And so you do want to find, you have to find the right match, but you do want to find companies who want to match up to the values and want to kind of put their money, you know, where their values are and what they want to be known for internally in their talent base inter and externally as an organization that supports diverse women. And I think that's all part of the narrative here. And I think, you know, we have to stop thinking about it as our negative about our league, but use it as a positive to actually sell the league and sell off the league. Because these women are amazing. They have great stories. Um, they're smart. They're entrepreneurial. They're moms. There's so many dimensions. And I got to see that even more closely uh, being down in the bubble with them. Uh, and, you know, I couldn't be more proud of what they represent, how strong their platforms were, and how not one and done they have always been. They have always been advocating for the right things and the right values. So now, call to action to companies, hopefully some of you on, in this conference, you know, to step up and, and support these diverse women, because these are the next generation of leaders. And if we don't invest in them now, 
um, the companies that are investing in these type of leaders will be the ones that succeed in the future. And I, I know this from my prior life, and I will tell you that the return will be enormous. It may not be the traditional metrics, but the return uh, will be definitely worth it. Yeah, get ahead of the game. Your sponsors, you see this league where these women are just so dynamic. And you mentioned a call to action. And the call to the action for the WNBA this summer was around racial equality, um, social justice. And one of the demands of the players of the league coming in to you, to the Players Association, to everyone was, if we come to Braden Bradenton, Florida, in this bubble, we want to amplify our voices for change. And in my opinion, um, I would say the WNBA set pace. I mean, you set the bar around how to do that as an entire league. But I'm just curious, I mean, as, as many companies and organizations look to put racial equality at the top of their agendas right now, how do you keep a pulse as a white woman on a league that's 80% plus black women, making sure that you are um, compassionate and empathetic and also understanding on how to move the league's brand forward around conversations that involve race? Yeah, it's a really good question, um, and it's a question of strategy. It was a question for me as a white woman of listening. Um, you know, I'm in my mid-50s. I've had a long career before I came here, but I learned a lot this summer from these players by listening. And I, I always say, and I forget whose quote it is, listen with the intent to understand, not the intent to reply. And in this kind of social media and politically divisive world, many times we're like, like let's reply. No, let's listen. Let's strategize together. I had several meetings with the players early on after, obviously, George Floyd and then Jacob Blake to talk to them about strategy. How do they want to play chess, not checkers, as it relates to their social justice platform? And had enormous support from the Players Association, Neko Gumake, Terry Jackson, Leisha Clarendon. And, and really, I, I couldn't be more proud of what they represented, but how they taught me to be more tolerant and to listen and to make sure that we don't always have to agree on every single issue, but we need to actually support. And my role as the commissioner is to amplify and support them. And, um, and that's what we did uh, and had enormous support from my team, Bethany Donovan, um, and others on my team that really stepped up and helped facilitate a lot of went, went, what went on in the bubble around the social justice platform so that now, coming off of the season, it's not a one and done. We can continue it with the Social Justice Cou uh, Council. Uh, we had uh, three black female mayors do a session with the players. We did other, call it social activist strategists, to, to really actually figure out how the players can take their platform and affect real change and support elected leaders who stand for their values, support the voting initiative, support gun control and gun reform, support criminal justice reform, because we know Maya Moore has now taken two seasons off to do that. Natasha Cloud opted out to work on her platform. So, you know, if you think about that, I mean, this isn't a one and done for us. This is, this is now part of the fabric of the WNBA. Yeah, I could not be more proud of, of watching those women just um, as organized and educated as they were around the issues, as intentional as they were in their messaging, often around voting. Um, it, it was just amazing to watch. And I want to go a little bit deeper um, because there was a night, August 26th, when the WNBA was set to play on ESPN and led by the Washington Mystics, a decision was made as a league that there were, would be no games that night. 
um, this was shortly after the shooting of, of Jacob Blake, you were there in conversation with players, with Nekagumake, the president of the Players Association, as the decision to not play was made. What did you learn from what happened that night? Yeah, it was really interesting. As I walked into uh, our arena, um, I saw some of the coaches in the hallway, and um, and I usually got there about 45 minutes early before tip, but I got there a little earlier that day because it had been evolving over in Orlando with the NBA. I had been calling our coaches to say, are you hearing anything? How are our players feeling? I know this is all so raw, and it was raw back you know, when we even tipped the season. Um, and so then I walked on the court and I kind of stayed in the background and then I saw NECA because the Sparks were going to play the second game. We had three games scheduled that night, all on national television. So, uh, and I think it was Atlanta, Washington and, and both the, the Mystics and the Dream were on the court in their uniforms talking. And again, went over and just started listening, kind of stayed on the outskirts and started listening. And sure, did I want them to play at first? Yes, absolutely, because I thought they could have a really strong voice that night to play for the higher uh, cause of racial injustice in this country. And they were all wearing Breonna Taylor already on the back of their jersey. They had done the Say Her Name uh, by the African American Policy Forum. Uh, and so they already had this really strong voice. Uh, and um, when they decided not to play, we 100% supported them. And LaChina literally, by the time we drove, it's only a 20-minute ride to the, to the broadcast courts, drove back to the hotel. Uh, I think it was Lasia and the Liberty who had put together this candlelight vigil, which was so powerful. Oh, I see you have it up here already. So powerful. Uh, and um, NECA and Lasia, as members of the executive committee of the Players Association, addressed an entire league in one place. It still gives me chills even to talk about it now. And we were outdoors in Florida with masks on um, and um, really just anyone who wanted to go up and speak. And the motion was so raw. But to have a whole league there talking about how difficult this was on them mentally, on their families. Um, some of them have sons and black sons who could have been the Jacob Blake or the George Floyd. Uh, it was, uh, I'll never forget, it was extremely powerful. Yeah, it really was. I mean, even seeing the mystics who were wearing the shirts with the gunshots in the back, and there were actually children there. I believe Emmanuel, who's the son of a Washington Mystics player, Tiana Hawkins was there. And so you're having these conversations that are of things that are happening in the world, but you're seeing the children there. And it was just, just what a scene. And then the next day, um, Holly Road doing the round table with the executive committee of the Players Association, having all of the 144 players locking arms in one place. It's, it's just quite incredible to see an entire league um, standing together the way that they did. Something that you've mentioned, and I want to read this quote. Um, you said, I built this confidence when I was in high school and college to compete in an otherwise male-dominated world, and I want to help other we women do the same, to succeed. I believe we might have lost Kathy. Give us one quick second. Sorry, technical difficulties. LaChina, it's Sage. It's not All Kathy. Right. Hi. Can you hear me? Ah. Hey, how are you? I got your back, girl. Yes. How are you? 
I appreciate it. You know, technology these days, got to kind of roll with it. I'm doing well, but you guys are having a blast in studio. I wish I had some company with me. You know? I know. I know. I have to say, I'm, I'm, we're not used to it here. And this is Laura and Allison's first time in studio and since like March on campus. So it's been really, really nice. I wanted to point something out um, as we wait to see if Kathy um, can come back. Latina Robinson needs a little bit of extra love because I remember meeting you probably what? <laughs> 11, 12 years ago in the cafeteria over here at yeah. ESPN and what you have done um, with your career personally, but then helping so many others has been beautiful to watch. Uh, for everybody who doesn't know, LaChina is a huge part of our WNBA coverage and the podcast that LaChina uh, created and is just rocking, it's called Around the Rim. It is the only podcast dedicated solely to women's basketball, the only one. And I just wanted to give you some love because you have earned it, you have worked oh. for it, and it's through the support of ESPNW, of course. Um, but people need to know all about LaChina. Oh, well, thank you so much, Sage. And you said the word helping others. You were willing to sit down and, and help young LaChina, who had never been on television, had no broadcast degree, no communications, but had this dream of doing this job one day. And you were willing to sit down with me and give me advice and, and help me out. So I'm just grateful for that time. Carol Stiff was a part of, of that trip that I made to ESPN and has been instrumental in my career. Thank you to, to Laura and, and Rosenfeld and, and all of the that have been advocates, Beth Chapel for me over time. But um, yeah, you, you sat down with me. You even told me to start using Studio Fix from Mac. And I'm still <laughs> using it to this day because I want it to look like you on camera. So oh my gosh. hopefully that's helping me out a little There's bit. There's a lot on me today, that's for sure. Um, listen, awesome with Kathy. And again, I'm listening to the producers. I'm not sure if we're going to get Kathy back. You know what? Let, let's bring Kathy back in, and I'll let you guys continue. I know you were close to wrapping it up, but real quick, I'm sure Kathy would love to hear this, LaChina. Your biggest takeaway um, from what we witnessed, another amazing championship run for the Seattle Storm. Um, but what, what was your biggest takeaway from your perspective, your chair, as you watched not just what the ladies of the WNBA did, but how they did it? The work, Sage, the work that they put in. I mean... Um, from not having facilities to work out in leading into the season, really not knowing if there was going to be one or not, the work that Kathy Engelberg and her staff put in to make sure that there would be a season, the health officials, the team. I mean, there was so much sacrifice that went into this WNBA season. That's why you're happy to see the numbers and the metrics meet what was put in, is that people were tuning in and the product was outstanding. And, you know, we had Jewel Lloyd on earlier today and, you know, just Sue Bird and what she's doing in her 17 years in the league. You just can't say enough. It was a very magical summer. And I was someone that came in, was unsure with everything that was happening in our world, if we should move forward with the WNBA summer, but it clearly proved to be the right decision in, a, in an outstanding season for everyone. And Kathy, I think you're back with us. There she is. Hello. I'm here. Can you hear me? Uh, <laughs> yes, right. I can hear you. Just going to wrap going to wrap this up here, but I, I was asking you about a piece of advice that um, you would have for women. I was reading a, a quote from you where you said, I built this incredible confidence when I was in high school and college to compete in an otherwise male-dominated world, and I want to help other women do the same thing and succeed. What did you learn that you would want to pass on to other women about how to succeed in a male-dominated world? Yeah, it is all about confidence. Three, I call it the three C's, confidence, 
curiosity. And curiosity is so important today because the world has become so complex. So whether you're in sports, whether you're in business, there's a lot of complexity out there. So you have to absolutely stay curious and courage. I mean, you saw the courage of the WNBA players this summer. You have to have courage to make decisions, to take risks. Um, as people say, no one shoots, you know, you, you miss 100% of the shots that you don't take. And that's something I've learned throughout my career uh, and has always been important to me to take some risks in my career. So those, that's the advice I would give LaChina to, to compete in this world. I grew up with five brothers and obviously joined a very male-dominated business world. But, um, you know, I have a lot of optimism that there's a lot of women and a lot of women of color who have great capabilities to step up into leadership roles in the future. And, um, you know, we're seeing it in politics, we're seeing it in government, we're seeing it in the private sector. Uh, so I'm looking forward to, to some of these WNBA players, too, becoming future leaders in corporate America. Well, we're grateful for your work. And as we leave, uh, I have to ask you, the 25th season of the WNBA coming up next summer, 2021, what is the top of your agenda in terms of continuing to expand and, and grow this league? Yeah, it is growth. It's innovation. Um, I forgot to mention our Tap to Cheer app. We had 140 million taps on our Tap to Cheer app. Think about that and let that sink in. Uh, a new innovation, something to, that we did in the middle of the crisis. Uh, and, and are able to, you know, again, hopefully glean some fan data. So we need to find new revenue models. We do have some special competitions we'd like to put on next year. We'd like to put on an all-star game. We do have the Olympics where the U.S. women's national team will be going for their seventh consecutive gold medal and then our 25th anniversary season. So a lot of momentum, a lot of North Stars pointing very far north. Um, we need some investment. We need further um, companies to step up and support. Um, but, you know, I feel really good about the momentum uh, of the league and, and how we're going to continue to drive the transformation, hopefully not just of the WNBA, but women's sports. Well, thank you so much, Kathy, for your time, for your leadership. Congratulations on a successful season. We will look forward to 2021, but hopefully you'll get a little time on the golf course before that. Make sure you're taking some time for a break <laughs> as well and taking care of Kathy in the midst of all of this. Thank you for listening to Around the Rim. Check out more podcasts from ESPN on the ESPN app.